Hi, Flash Forward patrons. Sorry for the long gap between the last bonus episode and this one. Things have been weird over here uh, in America and also in my life. Um, anyway, this is my full interview with Finn Brunton from way back in season one. Finn is an assistant professor in media, culture, and communication at NYU, where he works on the history and theory of computing and digital media technologies. So I talked to Finn for season one, episode seven, which was about a future without the internet. If you missed that episode, you can go back and listen to it using your podcasting app. Now it should be in the list of episodes. It's called The Day the Internet Broke, or you can find it at flashforwardpod.com. As always, if there is someone I had on the show that you'd like to hear more from, email me. I'm at info at flashforwardpod.com. In a few weeks, you'll hear the full interview that I did with Anne Leckie, another one from season one. Um, she's a great sci-fi writer, um, won a ton of awards for her books, and you'll get to hear our whole conversation in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening, and most importantly, thank you so much for being patrons. You really are the reason that this show can continue to exist. Okay, without further ado, here is me and Finn. Hello, this is Rose. Hi, this is Finn. Hi, Finn. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. I'm sorry. I don't know what that was, but it felt like a prelude to like an internet breakdown conversation. You know, <laughs> these like little digital chunks. Yeah, totally. I think it might have been on my end. This is actually a Skype line, and sometimes my internet can be a little bit funky. So I just plugged into the Ethernet. So we should be better now. Awesome. I have this sort of fantasy that like maybe the internet would stop working because like sometimes I find the internet totally terrible. And so sometimes <laughs> I have this like fantasy, like what if I just woke up tomorrow and there was no internet and it would be mm -hmm. so great. Um, but it probably wouldn't be great. It would, there would be like downsides too. And so, so I guess that's sort of the, the starting point. And I guess maybe, um, I mean, we can kind of start wherever, I guess like, you know, the standard things I say to people is like, feel free to be totally out there. Like, don't worry about reality as much uh, as like maybe uh, other podcasts. I'm, we're unconstrained by reality. Um, <laughs> space pirates. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like if we need space pirates, then space pirates will exist. Um, so that's kind of where, where I'm starting from. And maybe, um, I mean, maybe the first thing, I mean, usually what I ask is just like, what comes to mind for you in terms of like that setup? Like what is the first thing you think of when I say, this is a future in which there is no internet or the internet has like broken down in some fundamental way. Oh, wow. Well, the, um, the first thing actually is, um, let's see, I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm sorry. I got totally distracted by the idea of thinking about two moons and the tides that they would create. Um, I had this vision of uh, the moons in conjunction with tides rolling over the surface of the earth, but back to, <laughs> to the <laughs> um, well, the, um, when you bring that up, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is precisely that question of how, um, because the because to to envision to to try to imagine what life would be like post internet, I, I would the, for me the, the immediate um, thing that I that I find myself wondering about is how does this come about because the context would have to be such an extreme change in our present circumstances that it would probably have a very dramatic effect on whatever that experience was like. Um, and since, since you uh, got in touch with me, I actually had been giving some thought to how that might have happened. 
Um, and I, I, uh, if this is okay, uh, I actually put together like some different sort of scenarios. Yes, that's amazing. I love it. Um, I had I had a lot of time to think about this while I was driving around. Um, <laughs> by the way, I'm so sorry it took so long to schedule this. Oh, no, it's, it's been fine. a really weird time in my life. It's totally fine. You have actually um, not been the hardest person to schedule with, so don't even worry about it. <laughs> Well, so, so, so just thinking about that, so the, the extremely short answer, which is and also in some ways uh, the most banal answer, is that uh, and I'm kind of going to be going in, in like ascending degrees of implausibility. Um, actually, I'm sorry, would it be, would you mind plugging in headphones or something? Because I can hear myself echoing back. Oh, you can hear yourself weird. I'm wearing why... headphones, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's so you can hear yourself. Let me, hold on. Let me unplug them and replug them back in um, and see if that works. I'm so sorry about this. No, it's okay. Does this is this better? Um, let me just see. Testing, testing. Um, I, that's a really peculiar thing. Um, I, actually, that is better. Weirdly. Okay, so I just unplugged um, my headphones. So we'll just go with this. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that was happening. If that you is weird. Sorry. One second, actually. Let me um, just close my window so that way it doesn't pick up the loud trucks outside. <laughs> okay. Go for it. Okay. So thinking about all these different uh, sort of ways that the the internet could go away, um, the first thing, the, the immediate thing that comes to mind would be uh, a, like a recurrence or actually sort of a mega recurrence of something called the Carrington event. Um, do you know what the Carrington, do you and Lane talk about the Carrington events? No, I don't think so. Actually, I'm going to mute myself because now that it's playing out of my speakers, my recording device is picking it up. So, oh, oh no! Well, put put your headphones back in, and we'll see because it just came and went a little bit. So, um, okay. let's see. Yeah, it was just a very very small thing. I was worried that it would get worse, but um, but let's see how it goes. Are you hearing yourself now? Uh, let's try take two. Uh, no, not so far. I, I really don't know what that is. It might have been strange. some wonky Skype thing. Um. um. Good. Well, glad. I'm. Um, yeah, it is. I. I totally understand when you're like hearing yourself talk, and then all of a sudden it's like extremely distracting and difficult <laughs> to continue. Or you're like, did I just say that? I just said that. It's. It is actually. It's kind of amazing. I don't know why it's as off-putting as it is. It's a really peculiar phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the Carrington event. Um, uh, in 1859, and this is an event that I'm a little bit obsessed with personally. Um, the Carrington event is basically was was a really unusually extreme case of solar weather, um, and it has its name because this astronomer in 1859 was looking at the sun and saw these distinct flashes on the surface of the sun, and what he was actually seeing were these uh, these sort of eruptions on the solar surface that then arrived at Earth, uh, you know, after a little time delay, uh, in the form of this, this very unusually extreme solar weather. And along with things like spectacular auroras and stuff like that, it completely messed with uh, the, uh, the, the planet as a whole. But in particular, uh, electrical devices picked it up. And we have many fascinating accounts of the um, really, uh, at that point, you know, very kind of rich and widespread world of telegraphy, um, where there were like sparks showering out of the telegraph lines and telegraph operators were shocked 
trying to operate uh, their devices. Um, and for and in some places, the system actually began to melt, essentially, um, just because all of the, the sort of components were picking up this kind of uh, unusual electromagnetic influence. So that might be one thing that would sort of temporarily incapacitate parts of the Internet, um, although not nearly as, as many. It wouldn't be nearly as total as it was with uh, telegraphy because many parts of the Internet are not sort of these exposed, largely poorly insulated wires. Much of it is fiber optics. Parts of it are buried underground. Many components of the system are to some degree shielded in different ways, and we would have a certain amount of warning. Now, that's something that might kind of like temporarily move it away, and that kind of gives you a sense of like the the scale, but it would still have to be, you know, this kind of massive global event. It begins to give you a sense of like the scale of what a problem would have to be. Um, and one that's uh, on a somewhat similar, but, but far more encompassing and total um, level would be what's called an electromagnetic pulse. And this is uh, like a side effect of a nuclear blast. Um, it's something where, uh, in a very extreme hypothetical scenario, if you wanted to black out a part of the world effectively uh, without causing any other significant harm, there are ways that you could conceivably um, detonate a nuclear device outside of the Earth's atmosphere um, and uh, you know, try to ablate the blast in, in particular ways such that you would only get the effect of this sudden massive electromagnetic pulse, which would effectively uh, kill all uh, unshielded electronics, um, everything from cars to phones to computers. Um, a lot of uh, electronic systems would be completely wiped or the media would degrade in various ways. Um, they would be fried. You wouldn't be able to activate them again. Um, or you can in some cases, but it takes a certain amount of repair work to get things back together. But the reason I say that is that that's a fairly common scenario in the world of like military and disaster planning for thinking about what happens when communication systems go down. But even in that case, it's not like the internet goes away. Instead, it's like one specific local region that's within the range of the EMP uh, is completely knocked out, but the rest of the network is still there. And once you can get some kind of uh, you know, local system working again, um, you can reconnect, you can, you know, you can sort of get, you, like everything else is still going to be out there. Um, and the reason that I, I sort of bring up these two at first, which are not really like the internet goes away, but kind of give us steps towards it, is precisely that, that they begin to capture the, the fact that the kind of somewhat boring fact, but I hope this leads to a really interesting thing, the somewhat boring fact, which is that any um, crisis which was large enough to effectively stop the internet as like a global technological structure would be so encompassing that the internet would be the least of our concerns. So like the, experience, <laughs> the experience of daily life uh, would, would not be this kind of like, oh no, I lost all my photos, you know, in Google storage. It would be much more along the lines of like, uh, I'm dying of cholera, you know, <laughs> this massive <laughs> nuclear winter. Um, 
it would be something whose uh, who's sort of um, all-encompassing uh, danger would sort of would make it into something where, where our daily lives would be so unrecognizable that it would be hard to like subtract out the, the parts where we could kind of imagine the consequences of the internet being gone. But so I say that to, to set up like uh, a somewhat more speculative thing that I think might help us kind of get very exactly at these consequences, which would be my, my own personal favorite, um, which is uh, there's, there's various ways in which we can envision this crisis playing out uh, that are almost all subsets of some larger disaster. So, you know, yeah, like there's a super volcano or a massive pandemic. And, and then you would see the Internet start to go to pieces uh, in Segments, basically, as uh, as like data centers were abandoned, um, as the power goes out in various places, um, many data centers um, are are fascinating institutions because they pride themselves on their incredible uh, levels of reliability and resilience. Um, so they have you know backup generators, they have diesel fuel um, you know available, they have incredible systems of batteries. Many of them are very physically secured. Um, uh, they can be quite deeply buried. There's actual data centers that are built in uh, bomb shelters and things like that. But if we're envisioning a kind of like larger, more encompassing catastrophe, you would see this sort of gradual process where even if you were able to sustain power to your personal computer or your personal phone um, over the course of a matter of weeks, uh, as the power more generally started to go out, if the generators began to fail, as the batteries were exhausted, as the fuel ran out, um, increasingly large chunks of the backbone internet and the servers that provide the data would uh, would sort of begin to vanish from the system. Um, eventually, you know, the DNS servers would go, which are the system that allows you to type in web addresses and arrive at particular locations, and that would for the vast majority of us make uh, virtually everything on the web unreachable, unless you happen to remember, you know, these chains of digits that are uh, the actual addresses for specific places. All of those things would sort of bit by bit fail. Um, but again, that's sort of, that's under the rubric of like some larger thing where presumably we wouldn't necessarily be worrying too much about that because we'd be like, you know, dying of some sort of mutant avian flu or, uh, or you know, struggling to find food. So, so what I would like to propose instead is um, uh, some, some really hypothetical thing. But a thing that I have to confess personally, I find weirdly plausible, which is I was trying to imagine when you raised this question, what would be um, some context in which we would shut the system down ourselves? Um, in which we would, you know, as, as a public service, as a matter of duty or survival, we would be yanking the cables out of the walls, you know, and firebombing the, uh, the switching centers and the, the uh, colo rooms and all the rest of it. Um, you know, like what, what would be the context in which as a, as a matter of uh, survival, people would go and like dynamite the landing stations where the fiber optic cables actually come into shore. And all of a sudden we have pretty much our existing society, but no internet. Um, and, and I actually think there's a couple of contexts which are 
a little bit out there, but which I think are not impossible. And one of them is one that you um, you brought up, although it's in some ways this is the most this is the least plausible of them for reasons that we'll talk about, even though it seems at first like the most realistic, which is um, some kind of super virus. Um, and we actually have some practice for this. Like in 1988, there was a worm that actually effectively kind of killed what was sort of turning into the internet for a little while um, in the sense that the systems administrators who were infected with it were like pulling their whole local networks offline to try to figure out what to do and, and all the rest of it. But this, the, the network now is so complex that it was very hard to imagine a single program that could, or even a family of programs, however well put together, that could, you know, simultaneously damage the networking capabilities of individual computers, but also destroy servers and sort of destroy the infrastructure in various ways that can't be recovered from. But nonetheless, we can like hypothesize space pirate style <laughs> about some kind of like you know, super virus whose effects are so inimical, whose damage to the infrastructure is so total that we have to just like torch the whole system and walk away. But there's there's actually two other things that I want to raise uh, that I find really fascinating to think about that would be reasons why we would just like wholesale cut the system off. Um, and one is some form of a singularity phenomenon. Um, and again, like we're, you know, we're out in a little bit in space pirates territory, but you can imagine something in which we essentially create uh, something that's not going to be like, you know, a person, it's not going to be the Wizard of Oz, but we effectively create some form of autonomous, um, fundamentally inimical, uh, and extremely capable, uh, extremely intelligent for some abstract value of intelligence system that can live on our infrastructure, that can live in inside of, uh, you know, the world of networked computers and that actively wishes us ill. You know, you can, you can just sort of think of all the classic movie tropes about this, but it's something that we can imagine a situation where, for example, there might be some way in which it can use the the properties of the network, the ways in which content is delivered to our eyes and ears to harm people um, or to damage infrastructure. And again, it's something where it's like, it's everywhere. It's totally interpenetrated throughout the system. The only option we have that sort of keeps the human race alive is to just cut off the internet completely. Um, and then there's the last scenario, which is in some ways the weirdest, but also the one that, to be totally honest, as a historian, I find the most believable, or at least kind of the most fun to think about. Um, and maybe this just reflects my own proclivities. But um, but that is where, like, something deeply cognitively dangerous starts to take shape on the network. Um, some kind of comprehensive social madness. Um, something that is perhaps perhaps it is sort of conveyed through, you know, particular kinds of cultural systems that are augmented by technologies, media technologies that are still very new, that we're still only really getting used to and figuring out what they can do to us. Um, maybe in retrospect, we will see all of those children uh, who are like utterly immersed in touchscreen devices were actually being primed for the arrival of 
a new religion, perhaps, um, a new apocalyptic cult that spreads like wildfire through sort of human cognitive space and hops across language barriers and usage barriers. Um, we've, we've had an amazing cultural record of entire societies uh, losing their collective minds. Um, and when I think about something that we can envision as being akin to like the medieval children's crusade, for example, um, or, or the processes of uh, a kind of nihilistic abandonment of all prior order. Like there's, there's many different ways in which this could play out, but I, I'm a deep believer in the idea that we as humans are far more filled with latent psychopathology than we necessarily realize, especially for people in our, in our kind of current circumstances. Um, and that many of the kinds of phenomena that we see throughout history, the flagellants, um, the obsession with sacrifice, like all of those things could come into play again in profound ways that are enabled by the system um, that can uh, deeply unhinge uh, the, the society in which we think we live. And that might be a situation in which, like, you know, riding out of the distance to come save us come, like, you know, the technology relinquishers, you know, the Amish and the Mennonites and uh, the cranks and the refusenics and all the people who have, in one way or another, avoided this, who can, uh, who can begin going around and for, for the global social good, shutting the system down. So the internet goes away, but we are not in the middle of some kind of encompassing pandemic or you know massive climate change disaster that renders our lives utterly unrecognizable. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go on quite so long about this. Like no, I said, this I've is great. It a lot. I just, I, like, um, it's funny to me because, like, that that last one is sort of the one that, I mean, it's like 4chan takes over, right? Like, yes, the, yes like, exactly. Which, like, exactly. to be perfectly honest, like, as a, like, female on the, I was doxxed by 4chan last year. Um, oh, Jesus. And, like. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, it was shitty, but, like, it, when you're describing this, I'm like, oh, my God, these people, these are the people who are going to, like, because like, it's, it's not, I mean. It is kind of, like, hard to imagine it on a global scale, but on, like, a lo relatively local scale, like, for some people, that, like, yeah. feels very real. Like, the idea that, like, there is this group of people that is, like, semi-cultish who, like, doesn't care about humans, like, doesn't really care yeah. about, like, other people and only cares about, like, wreaking havoc and kind of making people miserable and, you know terrorizing other other people from like the security of their like basements in Alabama or wherever they are um and so like that like when you were talking about that I was like oh man that is very real to me <laughs> like it feels very yeah. plausible no no it's something where like no that's exactly it because I'm you know I'm very uh um I'm deeply fascinated by the kinds of you know extreme manifestations of these various corners of uh, like, yeah, these kind of like these kind of like little little corners and interstices of the internet. And so imagine, yeah, exactly. Imagine if like components of the motor that drives, you know, 4chan and 8chan and all the sort of places where like all the dirtbags who just got kicked off Reddit, you know, who mm -hmm. are going to going to go and do other things. Like, imagine if uh, an element in in that community in that world was found that worked very effectively. See, again, this is something where it's somewhat, I mean, it's not somewhat, it's deeply hypothetical, but it's, 
we, we pride ourselves now, you know, we've passed through the European Enlightenment and we're all very, excuse me, reasonable and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that, and again, this, this very much maybe reflects my own personal kind of sense of, of people, but um, our, our history is, is riddled, our, our global history to its deepest roots is riddled with that sort of periodic uh, explosion of cultural syndromes um, that are extraordinarily kind of complex, but which can take the form of like people, you know, who suddenly, um, just to take one specific example out of many, uh, who suddenly embark on, uh, on um, uh, what's the right word really? Like, yeah, there's basically horrific mobs um, to beat their, you know, friends and neighbors to death because they are now convinced that their genitals are retracting into their bodies. You know, general uh, the sort of like fear of like genital loss syndrome is a very specific like cultural syndrome, and it will occasionally have these giant flare-ups. Um, we we have these phenomena of people who uh, are become part of a religious dispensation in which periodically they have to. I'm thinking of like the Dukovors, for example, um, who have a really interesting complex history, uh, partially in Canada and partially in Russia, which involves. Um, uh, periodic sort of preparation for the end of the world, which does not take the form of violence towards others, but instead of destroying everything that they possess, you know, burning their homes, burning their fields, throwing everything away and like standing naked in the snowy woods to show that they have no attachment to the world as it is. Um, and we have like far, those are both very specific, but we have these kind of far larger manifestations, and I think particularly of something like the Children's Crusade, um, of these sort of sudden moments in which a, uh, an entire population, an entire sort of demographic within a population, uh, is seized by an overwhelming impulse, um, by a drive, by a desire that is uh, fundamentally extraordinarily destructive. Um, even if it's not necessarily couched that way at the time. And then you end up in a situation where, like, the entire childhood population of a fairly large swath of parts of Europe, uh, you know, goes to the Middle East to die on the way or be sold into slavery. Um, it's, a, it's an external, like, these things happen, and I feel like we perhaps are not as cognizant as we might be of what could happen if you can imagine, like, the incredible spreading power of memes um, combined with like forms of cognitive manipulation uh, that are now kind of evolving as, as cultural techniques. Um, if you imagine something like Coney 2012 fused with like, yeah, like 4chan nihilistic, like lulls driven impulse, uh, but that really brings people to a point of taking action. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just say like again we're, we're way out in this kind of speculative territory but i just feel like we you know jg ballard predicted that the next great religious movement was going to be something that would start on the internet that it would like begin there and grow there and take shape there and when he meant great religious movement it wasn't just like you know the great revival but something as profound in its transformative powers as the rise of, you know, Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, um, but that it might not look like anything like any of those, and that it would be very particular to its technological context. And I would bet that something like that is true. And I can envision a situation in which, um, 
in which there is in which its its effects are seen as so immediately corrosive and dangerous uh, that it, that it has to be stopped. Um, that it has to be relinquished. Anyway, I'm sorry. I get very I get very uh, 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 overly <laughs> overly. Uh, excited about things like this, no, um, this as, is as sort of bleak and horrific as they are. Yeah, but, but um, also I think that like I can also imagine like those a couple of those scenarios aren't sort of mutually exclusive, right? So like if let's say that like even if we don't get to a singularity, like if AI gets really good and there's sort of a moral panic about that, plus kind yes. of this like increasing awareness that I think we're already seeing of like there are some really really dark and terrible things that happen when you connect everyone to everyone else like when anyone yeah. can speak to any other human with sort of no repercussions of that speech <laughs> like the, mm -hmm. like we're starting to see that like that's maybe not a, a purely good thing right um, and yeah. so, like, I can imagine also, like, also, I mean, just thinking about especially the ways in which like lawmakers don't quite understand technology and like, you know, politicians maybe would be like, you know what, like, I don't really understand what's going on here. Clearly bad things are happening. I'm afraid of this AI stuff. I think maybe yeah. even if like, you know, even if we're not at the scale of like sending all of our teenagers, you know, to harass and rape women, like if, if that is even like a plausible idea, like I can imagine politicians being like, you know what, like, let's just shut this whole thing down. Like, this is a little <laughs> bit does. scary to us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That you can you you can precisely sort of imagine situations in which it's just clear, like it's not necessarily, you know, in my in my sort of as in my like extreme scenario, something where there is something in the in the the nature of our our relationship globally to network technology that like kind of plunges the world into madness. But that there is uh, there is nonetheless yeah like some kind of like really horrific cultural crisis that starts to play out whose effects are sufficient dire that even if there's something that could be sort of remediated and managed in other ways there's a feeling of like okay let's just like flip the switch and walk away from this for a while um try to like sort of we can you know you can imagine potentially a situation in which um and again, this is not something that necessarily seems super plausible, but something that's somewhat akin to like Japan successfully giving up the gun, you know, for, for quite a long stretch. Um, like recognizing that, okay, this is a technology that is so fundamentally corrosive to the social order that even though it has all of these various advantages, uh, we are going to find ways to keep it at bay, at least for a stretch. So it's all just to say that like, yeah, we can imagine these various ways in which we're still basically us, you know, we're not back to the, you know, the, the, pay, you know, uh, the Pleistocene, but it's, uh, it's still like, but the internet is gone, you know, for in, in one way or another. Um, and, uh, and that's one of the, that's actually the really, one of the really kind of interesting things to think about is to exactly try to imagine like how that would then play out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that's sort of the next sort of step here, right? Like, okay, so let's say like, let's, let's say that we have a situation in which we are not all dying. It has not like, you know, there wasn't like a, a huge asteroid impact where like we have a lot of <laughs> other problems or like, you know, all yeah. the undersea volcanoes have gone off. Like with like, in which case, you know, we've got other issues to deal with. Um, and like, I'm not like, no, but I can't tweet. Um, yeah. But like, like, let's say like we're in this world where like pretty much everything is the same, but we don't have access to the internet. And I guess in that case, we have to sort of stipulate like, does that mean that, you know, because like banking transactions and like GPS and like some of like this, these other sort of like connected devices, internet connected devices, like let's yeah. say those also are gone, right? Like, th like those have to be reconfigured such that we're no longer, 
using the internet. So like, I don't want to just talk about kind of like the like user side of like, right, like Tumblr or whatever, but yeah. also like this sort of like <laughs> communication, like it, it, it fundamentally like communication via the internet, which is like how financial systems are built in a lot of places now. And like a lot of that other stuff. So like, what are we yeah. like, I mean, I think of like Battlestar Galactica where like people are communicating by like landline and telephone and radio. Um, yeah. And I feel like that, like, maybe is where we go, but, like, maybe there's others, like, you know, maybe, like, locally your actual community means more to you. Like, right now, like, I live in a neighborhood and I like my neighborhood, but I don't, like, know my neighbors necessarily because I can talk to kind of yeah. whoever. But, like, maybe that's not the case anymore in this world. So, like, yeah, like, where are we, where does, what does that look like? Well, there's, so I, I want to actually kind of answer that in two ways. Um, because because the, the the I think in many ways the most straightforward answer is actually um, uh, kind of a fascinating one to to consider in its details, but it's actually a little boring in its general kind of overview, which is that we know a lot about what that world looks like because we lived in that world until relatively recently. Um, that we so so and this is actually but but to, there's there's an interesting detail component to this. So the reason I say that is that. Um, like we, the, the loss of the internet in, in one way or another, um, would not necessarily be nearly as much of a catastrophe as it might seem precisely because, uh, the internet has sort of superseded and replaced many of these like prior mechanisms, but we still have almost all of them around in one way or another. Um, but the really interesting thing about that is that this is actually a very time-bound situation. We're in this interesting moment where if something went direly wrong with the Internet as a whole, we could walk it back without too much trouble. Um, so, so what I mean by this is uh, we both still have a lot of the physical equipment for things like uh, broadcast television. Um, of course, for radio, um, for uh, for printing in general, you know, I mean, for, for making newspapers, which are a fantastic distribution system, really, like newspapers are kind of amazing as physical objects. And, and we still have a lot of those, like the presses are still there, you know, we still have a lot of presses that don't rely on any kind of digital support whatsoever. Like there's various things where like you have to, some of them now have, you know, onboard software and all the rest of it, but there's still many of them that don't. And you can still get like a Heidelberg press is, is for me, one of the single most beautiful technological artifacts that we've ever produced. Like a Heidelberg press is an amazing thing. It's just a jewel. And, and we still have a lot of those. Like they're just kind of out there in various places. Some of them are still heavily in use. Some of them are only for specialized groups and so on. Um, but we still have all of that stuff. Um, we still have libraries. We still have film projectors. We have record pressing plants. Um, and, and, and we have like all of that kind of stuff is still in place. And, and this is kind of the other important thing. A lot of the people who knew how to make those systems work, who understood them technically, are still alive. Um, their, their expertise is not just in, you know, old textbooks for, you know, managing broadcast television antennas, but, but is actually they're, they're still there. Many of them are retired, but, you know, they're not deceased and, and they're still very spry. And I, I used to do a lot of uh, media history work and I've met a number of these folks. And, and however, however, 
one thing, if we're being a little bit more speculative, is that we can envision this being significantly more catastrophic if we move the clock forward on when this event happens, another, let's say, 25, 30 years, like situations in which um, the, the, the kinds of dynamics that we see with the internet and its adoption and related technologies now has continued along this current trajectory, which doesn't seem at all unreasonable. And at that stage, you start to envision situations in which the internet is deeply, or the internet or various technologies that will sort of come from it, that will still call the generic name the internet, but like all that stuff, network computing, digital things, um, are like deeply interpenetrated in the texture of almost every level of everyday life. There, it's how we experience or interact with virtually all of our media. Um, it's how almost all of that is either delivered to us or stored or made available. Um, it's how we navigate through things. It's how huge amounts of important information are not just like there in the sense of like you can Google for them, but they're there in a deeper sense that like without the use of particular sets of like deep learning algorithms, you won't be able to find them. There's sort of, it's not just a matter of like finding the sector on the hard disk. It's a, it's a question of actually like knowing how to get to certain things. Um, situations in which oh, virtually all of what we think of as, as normal physical media, as old analog media are just gone. You know, like maybe they're still like they're still stashed away in various places, but there are very few of them. It's like hard to find a working film projector, much less bulbs for it. You know, it's really hard to find a place that can actually print newspapers, you know, print physical books, except for like small runs for uh, like people in prison, you know, or antiquarians, things like that. Um, it's hard to find people who still understand how analog radio works, who aren't like sort of, you know, like the tiny isolated circles of hobbyists, you know, when all the radio becomes digital and becomes managed in very different ways and the spectrum works in very different ways. And when vehicles need to be internet enabled to work, when homes need to be able to be on the network to work, then when that comes, it's a much more encompassing infrastructural catastrophe. And it's something where the process of trying to then work backwards to like reinvent these various systems suddenly becomes a crisis where it's it's no longer just like you know well now i guess i have to go to my public library you know <laughs> to go like figure out how to work the microfiche machine um i'm gonna like make a crystal radio instead it really is the situation in which there is nothing you know like you drop your quote-unquote book you break your book and then you have no books ever you know for, <laughs> or to get access to books requires a far greater challenge than uh, than it ever did before. It becomes a quest. So so we're actually in, like, if this crisis were to happen, now would be a terrific time for it to happen. Because we'd, still, <laughs> we'd be able to, like, reinvent our lives along lines that we are familiar with, like along lines that, that are, uh, we have this whole reservoir of both technical knowledge, but also a cultural understanding of how to live that way. That's still part of the living discourse because we're still, we have lots and lots of people who lived through this transition and can remember exactly like how the communal structures existed beforehand, how, you know, the, the, um, the, the various kinds of, of like necessary social circles that took place. My father still remembers the, the way in which, 
the, um, his, his father owned a hardware store in a small agricultural town. And, and he still remembers very vividly how the hardware store operated as like this center for people to know what was going on. You know, and you had like papers, you had radio, you had comic books, periodically like a truck would come through time. You had like the tiny library with the card catalog. And you also had this kind of environment where people would like come in and stand by the stove and talk about what was going on. Um, there's kind of an understanding of how all these things work. And we haven't sufficiently restructured our social system yet that 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 would become something where it would be like what in god's name do i do like i'm disconnected from the only social system that's meaningful to me which is one that largely plays out over a network space um and i have kind of no idea how to make anything else work like so it's 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 to say that um, there's many like interesting particular details that we can get into that I think would be like effects of this, consequences of this. But it's also kind of interesting to think about this as something where it wouldn't necessarily be that alien. Um, it would it would uh, it would be really interesting to see how people, after a period of post-internet existence, would think about what the internet was like. Like, imagine trying to explain the experience of, you know, getting sucked into, like, a wiki, like, wormhole moment would be to someone for whom that was just, like, utterly alien, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it's to say that it is something where, where we can actually maybe recognize parts of what that life would be like. Yeah, well, and also, right, like what is it two-thirds of the world is not connected to the internet so like to be like you know just like there are a lot of people who experience this now right and don't and they're you know aren't part of sort of the this like connected network that that sort of you and i think about or like use on a daily basis um, oh yeah no you, you're absolutely right no like this is and to be clear like this whole story that i'm telling is a story about the post-network world for people who are already deeply enmeshed in the network. But, but this is the other reason for why if this is going to happen, it's probably good if it happened now. Precisely because we have, like, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's a whole world of, uh, like, yeah, paperback books and radio systems and relationships with, um, yeah, the movement of letters and the use of typewriters um, that is uh, that is all over the planet outside of these sort of uh, hyperdeveloped spaces um, that that we can you know that actually works fine that really works uh, extraordinarily well and which we could uh, we could return to relatively easily. But I just want to mention one. One element of this that is maybe a little less personal and more structural, but which I think would in many ways be the, the biggest immediate issue, which would be if the Internet, like, for whatever reason, has to, like, suddenly stop, would be managing the immediate crisis in logistics. Um, like, it's one of those kind of less visible domains, but when we think about the Internet as, as sort of users in, you know, the United States, Europe, China, uh, Japan, et cetera, um, India, we, we think of this experience as, you know, being very much, as you say, like this kind of user-centric side of things where we are like, you know, it's social networks and email and banking and things like that, e-commerce. But, of course, the Internet is now so deeply interwoven in the process of getting goods, objects, food, fuel, medical supplies, you know, two different places at exactly the right times um, and coordinating the logistics um, of, of kind of moving things around, I think you would, you would see an immediate 
And there's, again, like things we can fall back on. It wouldn't be the end of the world, but there would be an immediate short-term crisis in figuring out um, how to actually get stuff from place to place, like how to sort of where, where things are needed so that we know what to put on the trucks and then tell the trucks where to go and how to get there. Um, we're so heavily based, again, in this one sort of sector of the globe, we're so heavily based now around like the just-in-time delivery of different components and having, you know, no overstock, no dead stock, no spoilage, um, that it actually creates these very long, very brittle supply chains that are extremely network dependent. Um, so there would be there'd be a fair amount of, of there would be a lot more like thrift store or clothes shopping and getting by and making do with old appliances um, and uh, and a lot more like discovering the the areas where local food is available you know <laughs> government cheese and kind of uh, yeah networks that can operate by radio to figure out how to uh, move things by rail or truck from place to place. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting to think that like now would be a good time. Like, I hadn't thought of that because it's like, I mean, for all the, like, bullshit that, like, tech people are like, it's a paradigm shift. It, like, really is, yeah, like, yeah. A, we are at this weird, like, inflection point where, you know, everything is connect getting connected and all the stuff, like, systems are being built that, like, don't connect to the systems that we had before. Um, yeah. And, like, that, I mean, in order for, like, this sort of, like, global movement anti-internet movement to like actually happen that probably would take a while but I wonder if like yeah like how much time do we have before it becomes really difficult to reverse engineer kind of all the systems that we currently sort of have even if we think about them as like being old or outdated yeah yeah no exactly exactly that like there's I mean it's one thing to say that like you know, things wouldn't be, you know, lost forever because, of course, you know, university libraries are, like, full of people actually without without giving any personal details away. I know librarians who uh, work for um, major university libraries, and we have had, like, private conversations that include, like, you know, just kind of, like, you know, somewhat hand wavy, just for fun, conversations about crisis or apocalypse or survivalism or whatever. And they they always have this kind of like, well, yeah, if a crisis hit, I would go to the library, you know, like we would, and we would bring our rifles and we would be prepared <laughs> to defend the library. Um, and and there's, there's a real spirit of the sense that like, you know, that, that we can also see like with the kind of historical knowledge of the destruction of the Library of Alexandria or the destruction of the destruction as much literate society as he could get his hands on by uh, the emperor uh, Qin. Um, like we've seen these different moments where events have happened, where people have attempted to sort of destroy prior knowledge and that there is now like a really strong social sense that it's vital that those things be protected, that we keep the analog things, you know, on acid free paper in acid free archival boxes in, in these sorts of places. And, and so, I mean, all that stuff is, still there. And so it's one thing to say that, like, you know, the knowledge will be preserved because, sure, it will be preserved. You know, I uh, have this kind of even more than my weird, almost erotic obsession with uh, social madness is my fixation on salt mines um, <laughs> because you've got all kinds of things stashed away in salt mines. Um, you've got huge amounts of cultural legacy ranging from, like, artworks to, like, much of the Warner Brothers archive um, is all stuck in a salt mine in, uh, I believe, Kansas. 
Um, and those are those are fine. Like all of human society could fall to pieces, and the salt mines would be a okay for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so all of that stuff could be brought back. But but this is all to say that I think your point is a really really good one, which is that we tend to think of the internet as being an informational medium, um, but in many ways far more important is its function as an infrastructural medium, as like a system that underpins other systems and one whose um, interdependence with the aspects of our lives that are far more immediate and pressing, like transportation, shelter, food, medicine, things like that, um, are uh, like just being able to figure out like where are the other people, who needs help, who has food, you know? Um, just being able to figure those things out suddenly become uh, really, really serious problems if the internet goes down. And we, we, again, to your point, like we have many, many ways to like take care of that now, but I can easily imagine a scenario in which bit by bit, you know, as you're working on like the line items in your budget, you know, you're kind of like, well, we can presumably get rid of like this weird, archaic backup telex system for communicating between these groups. You know, we can just kind of let that one go away because the internet is so much more efficient and we get so much more functionality out of it and so on. Like, why do we need to keep these mechanisms that are based on like, you know, ham radio spectrum around. And if you're, you know, getting out of our, like our particular sort of hyper-developed first world space, um, many of the initiatives that are taking place now in these communities, in these, uh, you know, countries and environments that still have like the older technologies is of course the, the leapfrogging approach. Like let's skip over the intervening uh, technological sort of, you know, elements of infrastructure that we had to develop to, to get these systems. And let's instead just jump straight to, you know, the systems that we have now. Let's move very, very quickly to these much more efficient networked wireless systems. And those are the systems where, again, like if those are the, the linchpin on which everything else depends, and there isn't necessarily that like archaic but still present infrastructure of like copper line telephony and like old school switching systems sitting around, um, then, then you could create something in which there is a far greater degree of vulnerability. Yeah. Well, one thing that, that you mentioned, uh, actually, Lane, uh, and I talked about a little bit too, is like the the power and sort of the the staying power of like books and papers and newspaper and like yeah. if we if we think about like okay what well, let's say we have this sort of post internet society like in you know after a certain amount of time like those the paper will stay stick around but a lot of these sort of digital mediums like these discs and and everything like that erodes much faster uh, and yeah. so a lot of like you know I can imagine like let's say that we we go post internet or whatever. And then, like, you know, 300 years after that, you know, or whatever it is, we have newspapers from, you know, the Middle Ages, but we don't have any record of, like, Tumblr, right? Because, like, that <laughs> stuff got, gets, like, you know, eaten up and lost or, like, either, you know, it doesn't get saved on hard drives or there's just too much of it. Or, like, how do you figure out which to save? Or just, like, the physical decay of, of hard drives and disks and, you know, floppies or whatever is faster than if you write, like, save paper, which is, like, much easier to preserve. Yeah. No, no, that's, God, that's absolutely true. That's something, honestly, that I think about an awful lot. Um, it's so it's so funny, by the way, we're having this conversation at this exact moment. I don't know if you can hear it over... Is it a uh, bell? Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. The, no, the bell is tolling noon, but it sounds very like it really captures this kind of, you know, post-internet, like quasi-medieval, <laughs> like we have to alert everyone as to what the time is so they can set their clocks because, of course, now they're not network coordinated. Um, but, uh, but to your point, um, the uh, no, there's, there's several different uh, sort of that simultaneously the, the beauty one of the things that i'm obsessed with with the internet is is like understanding to the best i can all of the different components and layers the different like dependencies and interconnections that are necessary to gain access to any particular piece of information so let's take tumblr as an example um so tumblr like let's actually no let's take a specific uh, thing on a specific Tumblr. Um, let's take let's take a specific health goth image. You know you can imagine like one specific JPEG that like you know like and then you've got so, so you've got this JPEG right, um, and that JPEG is an image that captures something very salient about the health goth subculture. You know in that in that kind of weird moment that it had or is having. I think it's already over. It's hard for me to tell. Um, <laughs> So, um, so you've got this like kind of image, right? And but then, of course, when we think of like you know like understanding what Tumblr was, it's not just the image; it's you know like the commentary on the image. It's the process of it being kind of reblogged and people talking about it and how it was shared. Okay, so that image exists in a particular place, you know, it has a particular kind of address in the database. I don't know too much about Tumblr's backend, so I'm speculating a little bit, but I don't think this is inaccurate. Um, and then there is a really quite complex bespoke system that Tumblr runs for managing all of the different kind of comments in the reblog chain and for kind of keeping track of who liked it and who reblogged it and so on. So that's a really complex system. And that system is running on, unless they have changed something recently, that system is actually running on Amazon. It's running on Amazon's uh, like compute cloud. You know, they're sort of amazing uh, provisioning system for providing network hardware to uh, many different groups and services. Um, so that's in some given physical location. Actually, given that it's Tumblr and they're, they're you know quite large, it's probably been copied across a number of different locations, you know, for like load balancing purposes. So, and I don't mean for this to suddenly get super technical, but rather to say that like, okay, so this is now a thing that we know that it's like on some given on a, like a slice of a particular cluster. So God only knows where it's actually addressed on, you know, some specific server, some spinning disk somewhere. So in our post-internet world, it's not just a question of when will the disk decay. It's a question of even if I can find, like, let's, you know, I want to, like, track that image down. I want to somehow save it or preserve it or something. Even if I can find that, like, Slice, even if I can like reconstruct from uh, from the the logs like where that image lives, and I find the specific image, like even that is an extraordinarily convoluted process that requires a considerable amount of technical expertise. And and what this means is that many of the mechanisms that we have for figuring out not just where things were, but how to look at them, how to actually like, bring them up, how to make them 
visible to, to us on our machines, that requires both technical expertise and other sets of software tools, all of which exist primarily on the network now, you know? So, so it's to say that like now it's relatively easy for us not just to find things, but to sort of be like, well, okay, if I want to look at that, you know, that page, if I want to find that particular instance, then, okay, I'm going to need like this set of software tools and I'm going to need like this various set of mechanisms. I'm going to have to like recreate how the network would work. All of that expertise is digital. Like very little of it is stuff that you could, I mean, you could gradually reconstruct bits and pieces of it from, you know, going through like old O'Reilly books that happen to have been printed on paper and like, you know, interviewing people who used to work at startups who might know about, you know, the weird ass version of, you know, the special library that they had built on top of the scripting language that no one knows how to use anymore. That was like addressed to the idiosyncratic database format, et cetera, et cetera. But, what I say with all of this is that it's still theoretically possible, but it becomes enormously difficult. And if you're going to have to be replicating that process many times over to like get elements of these things out, and if we're meanwhile dealing with all of the you know presumably like kind of social crises and other issues that are maybe taking precedence as a consequence of the entire internet going away, then yeah, maybe it's something where large swaths of this are just too much trouble to bring back, you know? They're, they're like, imagine not just something like Linear B, you know, or like Etruscan, like one of these languages where we have a relatively small set of things to work from, but that both means that they're harder to reconstruct, but also that it's like, okay, all we have to do is figure out what these symbols meant. But instead you multiply that by a factor of literally billions, you know, like enormous swaths of this stuff would be, completely opaque and and it would make it something where it's considerably easier in fact to go back it's considerably easier to read like self-help books from the 70s you know or uh, or yeah or like oh yeah or as you say like you know newspapers from the dawn of of uh, of like newsprint it would be so much easier so you would have these like huge chunks of what we think of as contemporary global culture that we would have to largely reconstruct by inference. I mean, that's actually kind of a fascinating thing to think about. It would be a wonderful subject for a novel, you know, like trying to imagine um, how you would understand what these things had been through the way people talked about them in the formats that were somewhat easier for us to recover and interpret. And of course, if we're looking at something where there's like a larger, um, you know, systemic technical crisis that happens, then a lot of that is just flat out gone. You know, like a, like a lot of the things that are living on flash memory, um, flash memory, the memory that uh, that is literally just like leaky wells of electrons um, that has, you know, a, a working lifespan that can be measured in single digits of years. Um, a lot of that stuff vanishes. Um, a lot of things on hard drives, if we're envisioning some kind of electromagnetic crisis that are just like scrubbed with like Gaussian noise, um, you could end up in a really bizarre situation where a lot of the things that you can recover are things that were stored on magnetic tape media or, um, 
or like, uh, or, or yeah, like things that were developed for aeronautics or the military. So it's like you can go back, because you, you can't actually do this. You can go back and find, and it's beautiful stuff. It has to be made by hand. You can find like magnetic core memory, which is what they use for like space flight things, because it's memory that is basically impossible to destroy. Um, like cosmic rays and things can't interfere with it. Um, so you can actually reconstruct like the software from Apollo 11 but you couldn't get, you know, anything that happened on Facebook. Um, and, and yeah, so it's actually something where it's like maybe there will be this, um, and to some degree there already is in some ways. Um, there, are, there are large swaths of what we think of as Internet culture that are in imminent, terrible danger of being simply lost utterly, of being lost in ways that we have lost very few other things. Um, so there will just be this kind of like this incredible density of information up until, let us say, like the mid to late 1980s. And then suddenly, bit by bit, like chunks of what we were and what we did and our finances and how all kinds of various things operated in our society would like go dark for future people. Um, but, but this is all to also just mention as a, as a footnote that there were a few groups who are valiantly fighting to prevent this from happening. And one of them is, of course, the Internet Archive, who are, who are wonderful and amazing heroes, and who, along with um, creating physical backups of as much of the network as they can, admittedly also on hard drives, but at least like backing it up in ways and on systems that are not going to have this problem of like, okay, here's a big ass disk that has like some interleaved morass of stuff that different companies who are using Amazon were doing on it. You know, good luck. Have a great time trying to sort this out. Um, they're still doing a much better job of backing it up, but they're also doing an incredible meticulous job of trying to back up and document things like codecs and various like representational systems and tools um, algorithms and display systems and, and drivers and ways of like actually getting the software that makes the data available to you to run. They're doing a wonderful job of trying to sort of keep all of that alive. But the mere fact that they have to and they have to fight so hard and there's still many things that they can't save because a company will literally just be acquired by Google and be like, well, we're sunsetting all of this. You have three weeks to back everything up, and then it's gone, you know? Um, the fact that things like that are still happening is a sign of how uh, severe this problem is going to become, especially as these systems continue to grow more complex and interdependent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, like, I mean, part of me is like, we need to back up GitHub, like, so that yeah. we have oh, that. Like, God, print, yes. print it all out. Print all of GitHub out. Um, and, uh, but it's also, I mean, it's interesting cause like, I think about this a lot because I, I like, as a journalist, I like write about stuff that's happening and like, sometimes things will happen and I'll like, I'll have this moment of like in, you know, 50 years, like a, and like, like the llama chase or like the dress, right? Like things like that, where it's like yes. in 50 years, like maybe I will remember that. Like somebody will mention like, Hey, do you remember that time? Like the llamas and I might remember it, but like. And, like, maybe someone, like, I'm sure somebody will write a dissertation about it or something like that, like, about, like, it, sociology of the Internet or something. But, like, at some point, like, does that, like, get recorded in our, like, history as, like, in a moment, you know? Because, like, we have these moments, and there are so many of them now because we're all sort of sharing with each other all the time where, yeah. like, that moment, the llamas, like, maybe only 10 people, you know, would have known about that and kind of, like, remembered it you know, before Twitter or whatever. 
or maybe like maybe a thousand because it was on like the live, you know, chopper news or whatever. But now yeah. it's like there were like, I don't know how many, but like I would say like tens to hundreds of thousands of people like who read about that or like followed it or like saw that thing and sort of engaged with it. Uh, and like we can't actually record all of that stuff. Like if we recorded every like meme or like moment like that, it would just be like, too, there's just like too much of it. Like that's like too much information. And like historians, right. They like have to kind of pick moments. They have to pick things that are the, what they think is the most important or like the most sort of indicative of the, of like what was going on. And so I always think about that. Like when stuff like that happens, I'm like, is this what like is going to symbolize internet culture? Like, is this the thing that like the moment yeah. that we're going to pick to be like <laughs> in the textbook, like a picture of the dress, like what color is it? Like, I, you know, I like, what is like, what is that? I don't know. I just like, I think about that all the time. Yeah. No, it's, it's that is a fantastic question. Um, and well, and for what it's worth though, putting my, my historian hat on for a second. Um, and, and I should say as well, like something that kind of flavors both a lot of the other things that I said, but also this is that I, I work on digital stuff mostly. Like that's kind of my, my major sort of area of, of research and everything else, but I, I have a deeply inimical relationship to it. Like I, I don't, necessarily like I, I lived without a smartphone for a long time i um, i went through a period quite recently of not having internet at home at all um just to see what would happen because i feel like one of the really interesting things is precisely to try to get if we can a little bit of distance from it to try to like yeah better understand what it might be what it might how it might be thought of how it might be construed you know precisely on like that time horizon where we're all deceased and it has become something that would be utterly unrecognizable to us. And and so it's and I'm really with you and exactly kind of wondering about that. But um as a historian, I I have uh two thoughts about that. And the first is a contemporary one, which is that um one way to think about what we're doing now, and, and this is maybe taking us a little bit away from like the wholesale disappearance of the internet, where we're suddenly back to, you know, uh, like radio and stuff like that. But, um, but, but it's, it's to say that like, I, I think this is very salient for, for the kind of question that it raises, um, which is that we're no longer making records for humans to read and for historians to think about and interpret. We're making records for machines to interpret and synthesize. Um, the, there's no, I, there's no longer a meaningful way to approach the corpus of what we are producing now, uh, using the kind of human centric tools of doing history or sociology for that matter, like thinking about what we were, um, and, like what what these things are now being built for are some of the very we can see very early versions of these tools being created now, um, and we're using them for very pragmatic purposes. I'm thinking of you know machine learning and particularly deep learning systems, um, where these are systems. These are the kinds of systems that are what make it possible for like Facebook to identify your face. Um, to like tag you by your face um, or for things that are evaluating videos to like identify copyrighted content or like figure out if a cat's in the video or whatever, or for all of the various tools that make it 
so eerily straightforward for Google to do semantic natural language processing so that you can like trivially write in a couple of weird like words that would be just baffling to a human, but which Google knows that what you're looking for is like this song, you know, or like this particular like issue or domain or area. So so it's to say that like those systems are going to be the things that will be making use of everything that we're generating now. And there, there will be, you know, presumably humans in the process somewhere along the lines. Uh, but a lot of the work of making sense of this is not going to be a question of someone sitting down and being like, now, now I will read all the tweets and I will figure out how to tell the story of, you know, what Twitter represented about, et cetera, et cetera. It will be um, uh, very, uh, very high level machine processes that will, that we will like understand how to configure and like make choices and set parameters. And then we will turn those devices loose on what we produce. And they will give us pictures of what was happening and what was important and what it meant that we would not have been able to arrive at ourselves. Um, really like chess, you know, where like the fact that the machines can do this now doesn't mean the chess is over. It now means that humans and machines chess as teams um, and chess is accordingly like transforming into a very different kind of game. Uh, but the, that also leads into the other thing, which is not a contemporary point, but a much more general one. Um, and this is, again, like speaking as a, as a historian, the beautiful thing about history, the beautiful thing about historical retrospect is that we, it's not up to us how we will be understood in the future. Um, we will be the subject of a radically different form of self-understanding on the part of people in the future. We will be their predecessors. And it's up to them what it is about us that was significant. Um, one of the things that, and what that means as a consequence is that to the best of our ability, like you always, you know, if you're an archive, if you're a, an archivist or a librarian, you have to be able to make like those kind of rational choices about like deaccessioning certain things, you know, picking certain things up and discarding others. It's always a decision you've got to make, but within reason, you have to also recognize that it's to, to decide that we know now what is salient um, for, for all, not just for, you know, particular scholars, but for all future people is an act of almost unimaginable arrogance and short-sightedness. And I don't say that just to be mean, but because it's a temptation to which we are always prone because who knows us better than us, but, but to instead remember that like to, to, to think about ourselves, the way in which we now think about the Victorians or the way we now think about like, uh, like Han dynasty Japan um, is, is to, is to recognize that, that what we understand about ourselves will be just one tiny slice, a historical curiosity in the unfolding of dynamics that are in retrospect going to render us profoundly alien to ourselves. You know, that we now, and we can make this very concrete, we can think about it in terms of things like documents, that uh, from the perspective of, for example, if you're doing the history of uh, like medieval Europe, um, from their perspective, of course, the really significant material, the really significant documents would be those that had to do with like the unfolding of endless from our perspective, mind smashingly tedious and pointless religious struggles 
But those are, of course, the most important struggles because they were living in the context of the imminent arrival of the second coming. They were living in the context of the end of the world. They were living in a framework in which they were the unfolding of a sacred dispensation. Um, and virtually everything else you know, took second place to that. So, you know, the kings and princes mattered because they were part of this grand story of like human affairs, but a human affairs that was only in the context of, of this kind of, of this, of this religious advent. But to our great delight, they did not destroy many documents that would not have been of any significance to them, aside from purely, you know, sort of uh, uh, operational significance. Things like, say, you know, ships keeping logs of the depths of harbors or parish records of when people were born and died. You know, people who were of no consequence. They were just peasants. They didn't matter. What mattered was the affairs of princes and kings. But we, we realized that there were very different stories going on, and many of them had a lot more to do with things like peasants and how they conducted agriculture and temperature and the ways that paintings do not necessarily matter because they record how some particular, you know, fucking book looked, but rather the kinds of weather that the painting captures in the background, you know, the kinds of uh, practices that we can see of daily life that were going to reshape the entire world that were happening off in the corner of the painting, you know, well away from where some, you know, tedious fop is like having himself immortalized. And by the same token, maybe like people will look back on what we think is a really important part of the internet now. Um, what really matters to us, you know, all this sort of, you know, meme stuff and social networks and the places where people are making all this money. And they will look back at it the way we look back at, like, the the use of lead plumbing on the part of the uh, aristocracy in ancient Rome, where, like, they, to them, this was like, oh, my God, like, this is the sign that you've arrived. You know, this is where the action is. through that plumbing, and it's awesome. And it's like, and it was. It was amazing technological infrastructure is beautifully made. It was like, it provided them with an incredibly high standard of living. And it also slowly, gradually made them irretrievably sick and insane. Like it poisoned them day by day. And we look at it now as this thing that was simultaneously a fascinating part of the way that their culture worked and like aristocracy and architecture and the invention of a new kind of urban living, but also as something that was slowly but surely making the ruling class into uh, people who were desperately ill with terrible impulse control without ever realizing it or understanding why. Um, and so it's to say that, like, we, we have no idea what it is that we do now that will matter, that will be of consequence. And so it behooves us precisely to like try our best to understand you know our own current cultural conversation and to try to like make that sense of like this seems like a really important step you know the arrival of like ferguson and the hashtagging and uh, and like kind of networked awareness of the ongoing decades of uh, police harassment and abuse and judicial execution and all the rest of it um, like that really matters it's really important but it's entirely possible that that is only one small fragment of some much larger process that's unfolding that we cannot discern but that people 100 years from now 200 years from now will be very glad that we saved all the stuff so that they can see it. I'm sorry, I get so verbose about this. I no, get very excited. I'm I didn't mean to be so... totally obsessed with the metaphor of, for the internet as being Roman lead pipes. Like, I feel like that is perfect. <laughs> like, I don't... 
I like can't stop thinking like that is like literally exactly what is happening. I feel like, <laughs> I, I, right really, I, think it, I feel like there's a there's a nice comparison there. Because right, really it's like works. it's like something yeah. that like only like especially with like the in the context of like Silicon Valley, like the the tech as like things that rich people can afford that we're all obsessed with and that like it's flaunted as like, oh, this is like the you know, the next big thing, but that is also like slowly making us all sick and insane. Like I feel like that is exactly <laughs> what technology is to me right now, and I'm like I'm like, just like, my mind is like blown. <laughs> I'm just like really into it right now. Um, Cause that is like the most perfect like metaphor for, or like, I don't know. I just, I'm like really, I like sort of lost track of what you were saying because I was like, what? <laughs> it's like exactly <laughs> how I feel that the, like tech is right now. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to like include that for sure. Or maybe write about it. Cause that is like, that is exactly what the internet is, I feel, or like what tech is maybe more broadly um, right now. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, this is all super interesting. I don't want to take up too much of your, of your time. Um, uh, but I mean, like, is, is there anything else like in terms of coming back to sort of like the loss of the internet? Um, I guess I'm trying to think if there's anything that like Lane brought up that I wanted to bring up. I mean, I feel like this sort of has touched on all the stuff that I've been thinking about or sort of curious about in terms of this scenario, which is like record keeping, what sort of um, systems sort of fall apart. I mean, in terms of like, I think, you know, I think of like financial systems, but like coordination, right? Like between shipping and imports, exports, like all that stuff is really important and like would be much harder or at least um, would be just very different. in this scenario, is there anything else that sort of like you feel like comes to to mind in terms of like what this? Assuming we're not looking at the apocalyptic version of losing the internet, like what this sort of um, future looks like. Yeah. No. Well. So just and yeah. I apologize. I actually, I should. I realized I was starting to get kind of lightheaded. I need to go get lunch. But um, this has been so much fun. But just maybe a last a last thing would be um, we or maybe two things that we could bring up as just like kind of open questions. Um, so one would be, you're absolutely right, like a huge sector that uh, we, we've only, you've brought up a couple of times and, and but we've never really kind of, we only touched on super briefly is, is finance. Yeah. Like uh, the whole, um, and, and this is, but we again have a really interesting example of how this might work because the whole financial architecture is, that is in many ways one of the leading edges of things which are so thoroughly woven into the current architecture of like telecommunications and the internet in particular, um, that would be watching the process of readjustment of like trying to figure out how to manage credit and how to coordinate like payment systems um, would be an extraordinary challenge. But we have a really good hands-on example of that, which is one that I'm I'm personally really fascinated by, um, which is uh, immediately after 9-11. Right. So like um, the New York Fed is one of like it's it's the core Federal Reserve Bank for the United States. It's one of the most important financial institutions in the world. Um, And and there's a huge amount of financial architecture that was in the world trade towers themselves. You know, all of these different record systems and storage systems and transaction systems like crucial financial nodes are run out of there. and the Fed, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, had two key tasks. 
Um, and one of the tasks was uh, a structural task, which was when like planes are grounded, there's no flights happening. Um, they had this really extraordinary physical problem, which is how do we keep currency available in different places around the country? How do we make sure that people have like access to physical cash that like the ATMs keep getting refilled so that we don't have like a freeze on the economy. Um, and as a sort of related task, how do we do things like process checks? Like, because check processing is a crazy nightmarish situation when you actually think about it. Cause of course you need to be able to like, Checks are all going to be interdependent on each other. So, like, you know, you can think of this in your own life as, like, you know, this is the way that, like, you need to make sure that your check from your employer clears before your landlord deposits your rent check. You know, um, so they have to do that on a vast scale. They have to make sure that they're not like overdrawing different accounts because they actually are supposed to be settled from something else already, et cetera, et cetera. They have to do this all of a sudden physically. They have to do this between all of these member banks. And they have to do this on the scale of like millions of paper documents that all have to be moved around to different places and, uh, and successfully sort of managed and reconciled. And they have to do all of that, and this is the other task, while maintaining overall confidence, both on the parts of the banks, but also on the parts of, of us, on the parts of the people living with the system, to prevent a bank crisis, to prevent a run, you know, to make sure they don't have a replay of the Great Depression where there's like riots and people are like lining up and clearing out their accounts because of course there's fractional reserve banking. In many cases, the banks don't actually have that much cash on hand. You know, it's going to be like um, the, uh, it's going to be like, it's a wonderful life. Except in this case, you aren't necessarily going to have Jimmy Stewart able to successfully convince everyone that like, no, no, the money's in his house and your house and we're all in it together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you're going to have a meltdown. It's going to be a really bad situation. And, um, and I would be happy to send you this link if you'd be curious to look at it or sort of further circulate it, which is um, – uh, people have put together a really interesting hour-by-hour -hour account of the working process of uh, the different Federal Reserve banks around the country and how they coordinated in the week immediately following to sort of reinvent the system, much of it along largely analog means. Um, to make sure that that could sort of, so it's to say that like, it's not just that it would give us an exact sense of like what would happen because yeah, there would be like major crises that would, that would ensue, especially in global, uh, global credit and trading systems. But, but it still gives you a sense of like how the people in this community like think about disaster and how they would sort of cope with a major network problem where all of a sudden, like setting aside the internet as, as such, uh, the, the financial world runs on a kind of subset of the internet, um, this whole like kind of internal set of interbank settlement systems, which are uh, in some ways more robust than the normal, what we think of as the, like, the main internet, but in many ways are also much more fragile because there's far fewer key nodes. And if you have something where planes are flying into the World Trade Center and all of lower Manhattan is shut down, then you lose a crucial node in the whole transaction architecture of the planet. Um, so I'd be happy to send you that because you can sort of see how they would think about and respond to that system and suddenly be like, okay, we're going to be like, you know, like making crucial paper documents and loading up 747s with them to take off as soon as we, you know, can fly again. And in the meantime, we're going to have like 18 wheelers stuffed with like, you know, pallets of the kinds of documents that can keep the credit architecture afloat. 
um, running. And on a smaller scale, there's a marvelous, marvelous um, history of finance study um, that was performed uh, during the banking strike in the Republic of Ireland in the 70s, when literally the banks stopped. And the people had some advance warning. It wasn't an abrupt thing. People knew this was coming. And there were certain problems that absolutely ensued. And it was also known that it would eventually return to normal. So people were able to kind of operate within that framework. And there were definitely some issues with things like import-export and, uh, you know, being able to get – like being able to get significant credit from outside investment became a serious problem. But, but on a day-to-day -day basis, a really fascinating thing happened, which was that people used their checkbooks. And then they started using the checks themselves as a kind of negotiable document, where when you needed to get groceries, you would write a check to the grocery store, and then the grocer would let someone else endorse part of the check themselves because the grocer needed to like pay the truck, you know, and the truck would use the check, part of the check to pay for gas. And so like the checks themselves would start to circulate as these like mechanisms where everyone would be like, okay, I know that all the way down the chain, I trust everyone involved in this process. And a lot of that trust was actually coordinated around pubs. Because the idea was that you could actually, like, if you were working from a check that was a couple steps removed from you, you could go into the pub where that guy was a regular and say, like, hey, is this, you know, is this original person basically trustworthy? You know, like, do they, do they not have a giant cab here or whatever? Um, and so the people, so uh, the, the guys running pubs ended up becoming these, like, cr crucial reservoirs of social trust. And you might see, like, a reemergence of something like that as a sort of stopgap measure. Um, but the other very, very brief, and this is just the very last thing, is uh, just that it, there is also a whole family of really interesting approaches to managing uh, Internet uh, access in a situation in which what we think of as the Internet has almost all suddenly gone away. So this isn't necessarily like we unplug it because there's some kind of like weird social zombification pandemic happening or whatever, um, but instead something where for whatever other reason, the whole system is, is gone. I just wanted to mention two of them as maybe interesting further areas to think about. Um, and one is uh, what's called packet radio, which is like super low bandwidth, like it's just text. You know, but we can fall back on just text and actually do a lot that can be run uh, by like people who are in the ham radio world. So you can like bounce signals over great distances um, and uh, you can kind of move information around that way. And people already do this as a practical matter. You can go to like very remote places and still be able to sort of get that kind of communication. So we might see things like that sort of come into being um, like with these very low bandwidth tools um, and maybe something where they could also be like relays because you can build working radios out of trash. Like you can build working radios out of stuff you can get from like a yard full of abandoned cars in a way that you couldn't necessarily build like a modem, you know, or a router that way. And you can sort of start from there and maybe like find someone where you can like tap out a message through the Morse code and then they can relay it by a packet radio to other people, et cetera. Um, so it's to say that there are like, I'm sorry, this is, this is a little bit too far afield, but, but I just didn't want to like, you have this whole conversation happen without mentioning that there are like people actually people now working people working on this who've given a lot of thought to like the little things that could come in and start to like fill in the gaps in uh, in a system where something like the internet to start to just vanish. Yeah, well, that's sort of the the like Battlestar version, right? Like people with the radios and the television or in the telephones are kind of become like the central hubs for everyone. Yeah. everyone relies on them. No, exactly. And like, and we would all like, we would, we would find ourselves turning to very different communities, like the military, 
you know, like I can promise you that if we envision a situation in which like there's a giant civilian internet crisis, the military network's going to be just fine. Like they've got <laughs> satellites. They've got this, they've got this system called Milnet, um, where they actually have, they're amazing. I mean, they're, they're these satellites that are out in geostationary orbit. Um, they're actually starting to roll out a new generation. They have like roughly, they're, they're built for, with a plan that they're going to come along with new things, but they, they can continue to operate for quite a long time. They're out in geostationary orbit. They're meant to continue functioning in the advent of a full-scale nuclear war. They can relay messages between themselves. So you can have like a few scattered ground stations that know how to talk to them. And they can handle data, they can handle voice, they can handle facts, which I find really charming. Um, but, but so it's something where you can envision a situation where if there is like, you know, the kinds of earlier crises that we were talking about, there's still these like particular channels where if you have something of a sufficient kind of priority, it can go through these things that have been designed for that sort of uh, extreme survivability. And it can be kind of relayed into other places. I'll confess I haven't seen Battlestar Galactica, but now I'm really curious to do so to see like how they kind of operate using these systems. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, so the, there are two, right? There's the original sort of old school one, which is um, really campy, like real. If you like, if you like old sci-fi <laughs> camp, like you will like it. Yeah. If you don't, you will hate it. So it's like, that's the disclaimer. Some people love it. It's not, it's not my favorite. The new one though, I think is really great. It's, it's, it doesn't take itself too seriously. So it's not like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like some sci-fi is like very serious. Um, and, oh, and this God, is like, yeah. you know, it's, it's not like campy, but it's like sort of self-aware. Like it knows that it's like kind of funny or like kind of like out there. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah. I think it's really great. It's sort of like a really interesting concept. And I, I, some people really don't like it, but I, I really enjoy it. Um, I think it's a really, and it's not, and there aren't, there are, I think five seasons, maybe there aren't a ton of seasons. So it's, it's not too hard to like, if you are a TV watcher, it's not too hard to catch up on, um, I'm not really a TV watcher, so it took me a long time to watch all of them. But uh, yeah. some people are really good at just like blowing through shows. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where you are on that spectrum, but um, but I thought it was, I'm, I'm it's definitely fun. on your side. I'm terrible. <laughs> and, like I get, I just I have to confess, like it's one of the things that makes me. I feel it may, might make me blasé about like losing certain aspects of the internet in a way that I shouldn't be. Um, but uh, but no, because I I, I I do feel I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not. You know what? I'm realizing like I'm. I'm starting to say grouchy things because I'm starving. And this has been such a lovely conversation, but I have to go get some food. Yeah, you should. Um, okay. one I'm turning thing into a total grouch. Yeah, one thing, don't worry. I'm always like that, so it's fine. Um, one thing <laughs> um, I will ask you to do before you run um, is can you just say your name and then sort of like how you want to be identified, sort of what your title is, I guess? Sure. Um, I'm Finn Brenton, and uh, I'm uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU. Awesome. Um, okay, well, go get food. Um, and I will, um, I'm going to work on this. Uh, I think this episode actually might come out next week. Um, so awesome. I'm going to, yeah, it's faster than I would like. <laughs> but um, it's, I, I agreed to do this weekly. And now I'm kind of like, why did, like, this is a lot of work. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Um, well, believe me, I know exactly that experience of being like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? This is going to totally be like a weekly column, you yeah. know? And then it's like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sort of kicking myself being like oh god what have i done what have i done it's so fun but it's like just a lot of work anyway yeah and i'll i'll send you the link for sure when it goes up to you so you can see it all right fantastic um so uh so yeah talk to you soon yeah have a good one thank you so much all right absolutely bye-bye bye